Season two. Uh, I'm really excited about this episode because of our special guest that we have today. And just a few days before the NFL draft, we'll be joined by CBS Sports NFL draft writer and fellow Western New Yorker Chris Chapasa. How are you, sir? I'm doing pretty good, Will. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Absolutely. Uh, welcome to Contested Catch. And as fellow Western New Yorkers, Jeff and I, Jeff isn't able to join us today. Uh, we're both raised and remain Bills fans. I'm also obsessed with the NFL draft. Uh, so that's why I thought you'd be a perfect fit to come on an episode here, uh, and very happy to have you. Yeah, I mean, even with the Bills not having a first-round pick, it's probably a pretty important draft for the Bills. Maybe not drafting a foundational uh, franchise building block, but there are some few positions that the Bills could certainly look to add some depth um, that will help contribute in not just 2020, but as this team continues to build toward for the for. Brandon Bean's sake and for Sean McDermott's sake uh, and all of Western New York really being a perennial playoff and maybe even Super Bowl contender. Absolutely. I mean, we're on the cusp right now. It's very exciting time to be a Bills fan after many years of uh, struggling through that. So, Chris, just for our audience, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background uh, in Western New York, connection to the Bills and, and how you became to be an NFL draft writer? Yeah, I still live in Western New York. I was raised here. I was actually born in San Francisco, but it was just my parents moving around um, before they had my sister and I. Um, they're from Western New York, too. They grew up in North Tonawanda. Um, I still live here, like I said. I um, still go to Bill's games with my dad. And the last, this will be my third NFL draft season covering the entire draft, every draft, or the uh, collective draft class nationwide for CBS Sports. I've Kind of like right. you, I, I was just really into the draft um, every year. I would maybe even dive a little bit deeper than most other uh, NFL writers. And this job, I kind of got it in a weird way. But to give kind of a summary um, of just what I've been doing, that's kind of where I'm at now. So this coronavirus stuff has like changed the, the dynamic at home for me. But really, my work has been the same. And I'm really excited that we're only a few days away from the draft. It's the time of year that we look forward to as people who are just so excited about the potential that comes with the draft and the new faces that come through. It's so exciting to be seeking to find the next big superstar uh, in whatever position. Um, now, while we don't solely focus on them, Jeff and I definitely carve out time to talk about the Bills. Um, we constantly discuss behind the scenes what we think and hope the Bills do personnel-wise. So first, let's just get your thoughts on the Bills' move to trade for wide receiver Stephon Diggs, obviously that's the reason that we don't have a first-round pick anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think on the surface you can say that it was maybe a slight overpayment, but um, going deeper on the move to trade that fifth and the sixth-round pick along with the first-rounder this year, um, the Bills had those extra picks in those er, in this draft um, after trading um, Wyatt Teller, before the season last year, and Russell Bodine. So to, to trade those bottom-of-the-roster offensive linemen for extra day three picks, 
and then swap those picks in a move to get Stefan Diggs, I think is a home run for the Bills. And I think a part of the reason why they paid a little bit extra than what we've seen, like for Amari Cooper and for Odell Beckham, is that Stefan Diggs is still really cheap. Uh, you know, $11, $12 million per season he's signed over the next three or four years. If he has a great season in 2020 for the Bills, I would not be surprised if he ultimately asks for a new deal. Um, and then that could kind of come back to why I think it was maybe a little bit of an overpayment. Um, but in general, they got a number one wide receiver who can separate. He's great in contested catch situations, too, even for being kind of a smaller wide receiver. And is really, I mean, if you look around the league, top three wide receivers, the Bills can say, they have a legitimate argument for having the best wide receiver trio in the entire National Football League. And that's something Absolutely. that Buffalo certainly has not had in a long time. Yeah, I mean, getting a, a true number one caliber player for Josh Allen, entering year three in a pivotal moment to see if he's actually going to be the guy is huge. Uh, in terms of the, the compensation uh, that we gave up for digs. To me, it really boils down to just this year's first. And obviously being 22nd overall, it's in the, you know, the later part of the first. Uh, the, the fifth and sixth round picks, like you said, we got them for free, but they're negligible picks on day three. Very rarely do those players turn into quality starters. And the future fourth, you know, you basically just knock a round off for a future pick. And so that turns into a, you know, a fifth round pick, which again is negligible. So, um, for a first round pick for Stefan Diggs on still a reasonable contract when we are probably going to draft a wide receiver in the first round anyway, I'm all, I'm here for it. So thrilled with that move. Uh, I'm glad that you are as well. And, you know, even if it, even if we do have to give him a new contract, hopefully that means that he, that he's earned it in Buffalo uh, and, and we're having success through that. So now next on the bills, you posted your plan for the perfect draft for the bills in an article on CBS sports. Uh, it came out just a few days ago. I'd like to talk through that just a bit. So to give a brief summary for our listeners, if they haven't seen it yet, you have the following steps in order competition at CB2 to be addressed, a developmental edge, Depth at running back and wide receiver, offensive line depth, especially right tackle, and a big nickel prospect. And I want to focus in on the big nickel situation first. Uh, there are two particular prospects that come into mind when I think about stellar fits in that role, and that would be Kyle Duggar and Jeremy Chin. Both should be there on day two. What are your thoughts on these two guys? Well, I actually have a first-round grade on both of those prospects. Um, and I have uh, Jeremy Chin actually a few spots ahead of Kyle Duggar for a few reasons. Um, first off, he's almost two years younger than Kyle Duggar. I, I, I don't think we should ever forget that, um, that the plays he was making was, you right. know, as a 21-year-old, 22-year-old, Kyle Duggar's 23 already, turns 24 this year. Um, he had a little bit better of a combine than Kyle Duggar, and he's a little bigger. He's 6'3", uh, over 220 pounds, and just the film for both players. They're explosive new age linebacker safeties. I think Jeremy Chin's a little more fluid changing directions, but they're so explosive um, when they do need to change directions or when they're just flying downhill, uh, following a route down the field from a tight end um, or just ranging from the deep middle. So I think I put that number five um, on my perfect draft scenario for the Bills, but I almost threw it in there, not because I think it's the fifth most important, um, but it's almost just a wild card that with Matt Milano and Tremaine Edmonds, it's not a gigantic need right now, but I do think the Bills want to have a big nickel player. They tried Saran Neal there um, to, and had kind of limited success because he's a liability in coverage. Um, right. And if Jeremy Chin or Kyle Duggar were to be available in the second round, I could see that 
you know, maybe not huge needs, superseding edge and corner that are more immediate needs for the Bills to pick one of those two, Jeremy Chin or Kyle Duggar. Yeah, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head, and it's definitely not an immediate need. But the way I look at it is we could use a little help at linebacker, and eventually we're going to need to replace one of our two safeties, if not both. And so when you get a guy that can fill both spots almost simultaneously, uh, or, or at least, you know, address the immediate term and future, I say, why not? And both those guys are freak athletes, truly. It's amazing how many of them we have in this class. You can think of a later round guy like Tanner Muse as well, running a 4-4-1, 225-ish pounds, uh, also could, you know, be in that conversation. So I'm really excited about the big nickel position being potentially addressed here. The reason that I still have Duggar just one tick ahead of Chin on my big board, and they're both right outside the second round, is just that Duggar seems like a better playmaker. And it could be, you know, it could be a, a product of that two-year difference for sure. But they're both unknowns. They're both great athletes. Duggar has better length, um, not height, but actually arm length. And he's just a better playmaker at the, at the moment. So for the Bills trying to win in this Josh Allen rookie window, I would prefer Duggar in that. In your mock, you actually had the mock that that um, that came after your your plan here. You had Buffalo getting Edge Curtis Weaver out of Boise State at 54th. He's my 26th ranked player, 27th ranked player, excuse me, uh, third ranked Edge on my big board. So I love this one. What are your thoughts on on this fit for Buffalo specifically? Yeah, we see almost eye to eye on him because I have Curtis Weaver as my number three edge in this class. He's actually my 16th overall player, just wow. how my grading system spit out um, where he was going to land on my big board. I just think he would be the perfect type of player in that um, he reminds me a lot of Jerry Hughes. That's my comparison for mm. Curtis Weaver. And even with Jerry Hughes, Mario Addison, and, and Trent Murphy, I still think long-term – the edge rusher spot because those players are older is still a pretty big need for the bills. I could see Buffalo going corner in round two at number 54 overall. Um, even after adding EJ Gaines back uh, and signing Josh Norman um, because Levi Wallace was still good. And he certainly outperformed being an undrafted free agent, but took a little bit of a step back in year two. Um, yeah. But I think there's better value in the third round and fourth round at corner than there is at the edge rusher spot, which to me is the second most important position on the defensive, or probably the most important position on the defensive side of the ball, probably the second or third most important position in all of football. So it's really about the the tier, the strength of the edge rusher spot and where it kind of thins out uh, talent-wise compared to corner, which I think there's a lot better corners that will go like from pick 35 to pick like 105 than there will be at, at the edge rusher spot. Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, not to mention we have a really good safety tandem back there to assist CB2, whoever that ends up being. I think Norman's going to end up being a really good fit and a really good short-term option. Uh, I would love a developmental cornerback for sure. So even though you mocked Curtis uh, Curtis Weaver here, and he's so high on your big board relative to where we would get him in this scenario, is there one prospect you're really praying falls to Buffalo? Is it Weaver or is it someone else? Uh, I actually had – a friend who asks me this every year, like he'll text me right before the draft, big bills fan. And we'll always say like, who are the two guys that you're just like hoping the bills will draft? Just like your favorite players that yeah. could be there. Um, last year, ironically, it was Ed Oliver and Jonah Williams. And they nice. were both on the clock yeah. when the bills picked. Um, and so, yeah, Ed Oliver was my favorite last year and the bills landed him, which was kind of crazy um, to me. It would, I mean, 
we just talked about him, it would be Curtis Weaver or Jeremy Chen. That I, okay. I really like corner later. Um, and with Stefan Diggs, I don't think they need to go wide receiver there. If, if a, a crazy big name falls, maybe that would be the case. But Curtis Weaver, this is what I texted my friend yesterday, Curtis Weaver or Jeremy Chen, if either of those two were on the board at 54, I think the Bills could really just flip a coin and go with either of them. Yeah, I'd love that. I mean, that would be huge. And a lot of people would say, whoa, 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 the defense is great. They're already basically, you know, a a, a consensus top five defense in the league. Why not go offense? Well, first of all, we just got Stephon Diggs. Second of all, we've got a really strong offensive line. Could use some more depth, which you talk about later in your plan. Uh, But this defense is probably a piece or two away from being a perennial top five and not just, you know, a one off where we finally peaked and slide back down. Um, Speaking of offensive weapons, a lot of people have talked about, even before Buffalo gave up their first-round pick, uh, Buffalo going running back early on in the draft. I've seen way too much of this, in my opinion. Uh, there's a quote-unquote need there because Singletary you know, may not be able to carry the whole load himself. If the Bills go running back on day three, though, which is where I hope they go, who are you hoping they target? Who's someone you think could fall there that's a realistic option? Day three, so start of the fourth round. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if Zach Moss from Utah is there. Maybe some teams will have pushed him down their boards because of the medical reasons. Um, but he has awesome contact balance. Mm-hmm. He's a power back, um, pretty good lateral agility too. He's not going to run away from people. Would provide a good complement in terms of running style because he's a little bit um, bigger than Devin Singletary. Um if A.J. Dillon somehow were there in the fourth round, which is doesn't seem out of the realm of possibility because of the size difference and just because I think they're both good running backs more so than their size, he would make a lot of sense. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm mostly with you. Third round might be a little early. I know I put Eno Benjamin uh, in my perfect mock for the Bills just because I'm really high on him and I think he can mm-hmm. add a lot to the pass game. But I'm, I'm mostly with you, though, that – it wouldn't be a bad situation. I think it would actually be smart for the Bills to wait fourth round or later to go running back. Because you're not talking about picking your running back that's going to be your bell cow. You did that last year right. in the third round with Evan Singletary. You're talking about your number two running back, which even devalues the most uh, or, or the least valuable position um, probably on the team outside of your specialist at the running back. Definitely. So I, don't, I think it's a need. But it's not a need that the Bills necessarily need to address with one of their first two picks. Yeah, and, you know, we're not looking at any elite, elite running back prospects. Some people might argue Swift or Taylor, but they both have have knocks. And this is a really deep running back class, though, outside of that. I actually have – I loved who you just mentioned because I have Moss as my number four running back and Dylan as my number five. And Dylan in the top five is is a little hot takey. To me, I mean, we just saw what Derrick Henry was able to offer – and Dylan is quite literally a shorter Derrick Henry who's a better athlete. And I call him the beefed up Saquon, so I call him the bus. Um, I would love if, if we got uh, A.J. Dillon in the fourth. Yeah, and he's just someone that – it was funny. You saw him from his freshman season at Boston College. Just no one could tackle him. And, and, and what I do like about him, because I'm much more prioritized um, elusiveness and ability to make defenders miss than just mm-hmm. being a battering ram. A.J. Dillon's not someone that, like, lowers his head and looks for contact. It's just that he's so explosive and so strong in his lower half 
defenders just kind of bounce off him and he seems unfazed by contact. And you see the ability to make maybe one defender miss on a run. So you saw the combine, you saw the four five three at almost 250 pounds, a crazy broad jump in vertical. Um, he's a, a my kind of power back that he's not seeking out contact. He doesn't put his head in harm's way a lot. It's just, he's so big and so powerful that it's hard for defenders with arm tackle attempts to bring him to the turf. Yeah. And I actually love his fit in Buffalo and also Baltimore. And the reason is when you've got a dual threat quarterback, obviously this is Mm -hmm. way more true in Baltimore, but it gives the running back the ability to be downhill and not have to make everything happen because they're running or the quarterback's, ability to, to take some pressure off them. Uh, it, it would open things up for A.J. Dillon. Oh, my God, he would be ridiculous in Baltimore. Um, but I think he'd be a good fit in Buffalo. And same as Zach Moss. I mean, they're both tackle breakers. Uh, they're both graded uh, pretty well for, for what they were. I think Moss is a much more well-rounded player, and that's one thing yeah. I argued for Buffalo is why seek a perfect you know yin-yang fit to Singletary when you could just get a back who can potentially step in and maybe even be better than Singletary, you know, Singletary exactly. is this phenomenal prospect. He had a really good rookie year, but he's got some durability concerns. He's not the biggest guy. I'd love if he was, you know, the next LaShawn McCoy, but we'll see. Um, last one on here. You didn't, you didn't mention uh, a, a wide receiver specifically that you thought the Bills should target, but Jeff and I have talked, Jeff's obviously my co-host talked a lot about the idea of getting Brian Edwards and full disclosure, I'm a South Carolina fan and a grad, uh, but as a developmental wide receiver in the third or fourth round, who's been completely slept on since he injured his foot and, you know, pre-combine training, uh, people have forgotten about Brian Edwards. What are your thoughts about getting him in the third or fourth round potentially? Yeah, I mean, I will say this, that with the perfect mock that's at the bottom of my perfect plan for the Bills, that's obviously not the only perfect mock that I think the Bill or the perfect draft that they could have. It was kind of hard to kind of slot different positions into different rounds with prospects that I think will probably be there. Listen, I love Brian Edwards, and I'm not just saying that to you, (laughs) South Carolina grad. Um, Taking the off the field, or I should say the medical concerns off the board. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually had Brian Edwards graded in the back part of my first round that I, I don't see a tremendous Trump card with him, but I don't see a flaw in his game. He has great size, six three two fifteen. I think he runs good routes. He spent four years producing in South Carolina, knows how to beat press coverage. A lot of these other top receivers, CeeDee Lamb, Jerry Judy, Henry Ruggs, They barely saw press coverage and Brian Edwards being bigger and maybe having the the reputation that you can beat him up at the line. He saw it a lot. He can beat it. Surprising after the catch definitely has the contested catch ability too. Um, And really my comparison for him having scouted this other player three years ago is Michael Thomas of the saints. He was Mm. almost the exact same type and style of wide receiver. He went in the second round. And he's been a record-breaking wide receiver since then. So I think, yeah, if if the Bills are okay with Brian Edwards medically and his foot and his knee, um, they either believe are fully healed or will be fully healed by his rookie season, um, I would be totally fine third or fourth round with the Bills picking him. And really, even if he's not there uh, medically, with the top three, Diggs, Brown, and Beasley, they wouldn't necessarily have to ask Brian Edwards 
to be a huge part of the offense as a rookie. He's one of my favorite wide receivers in this draft class. Exactly. Hit the nail on the head. I love the Mike Thomas comp. I mean, that is a, a huge compliment to Edwards, uh, who's not been he was getting a lot of love. Then he got injured and he's been completely forgotten about. Uh, I also think the Bills are a perfect scenario for Brian Edwards because they've got the top three wide receivers figured out. So he can come in and be kind of like what Duke Williams was later in the season for the Bills, yep. where, you know, kind of a, a rotational element, maybe a goal line specialist. But that's doing Brian Edwards a disservice. Like, he's not just a quote-unquote big-body receiver. He was playing close to the line of scrimmage. When the Gamecocks lost Debo Samuel to the draft last year, uh, Edwards stepped in and, you know, continued to be basically the engine for the offense. So, love that. Uh, to have him as wide receiver six and your 28th overall player, that's awesome. I, I'm, I'm right on board with that. Um so I wanted to get actually onto your, your top 50, or sorry, top 250 big board on CBS Sports. Uh, it's really good, and I love your process there. So before we get into specific prospects, what goes into you know how you grade these players, your process in terms of evaluating them, uh, metrics or you know uh, information you use to do that? Yeah, well, this is, I think, the first time that I've been able to explain this on someone else's podcast, which I'm really excited about. Um, just because I want to be fully transparent and, and, and just let people know what goes into grades and my rankings. Absolutely. What I've done is for my grading system is like what it consists of is um, I have five categories that I grade every position. So and what how I would do this would be probably different than how you would do it or or anyone else. The five most important traits or skills at every position. So they're all uniform. Everyone's graded on on basically a scale of one to 10, but in reality, it's like six to 10 and the intervals are 0.2. So you could be your elusiveness. If you're a running back could be 8.2 and then your speed could be 8.6, but it's not just one, two, three, four, five. And then what's the average, the most important skill, in my opinion, for every position um, has a 30% weight and then they go down 30 25, 20, 15, 10, which would put the least important or the fifth most important category three times not as important as the most valuable Mm -hmm. trait or skill at each position. Um, And that gets me a raw grade for every player. And that's obviously just based on film. After the combine, I tweak maybe if I had, if I thought someone's speed was really good, but he runs a four, six as a corner, I might knock the speed down a little bit. Um, or size. Maybe I thought a guy was a little bit bigger. I don't grade on size for every position, only the ones that I kind of feel it, it, it does matter to a certain degree. Um, and then after that, after I get my raw grades for every player, um, I add what I've called or what I call position addition that um, a quarterback gets the biggest boost to his grade because of, of the positional value. And I'm not grading or creating a big board just for one team. It's for the entire NFL. It's just all the prospects. After that, offensive tackles and edge rushers get the second biggest boost, and it goes all the way down to running backs that don't get any boost because I deem that, outside of the specialists, as the least important position. So, um, for example, I could have a running back and Jordan Love uh, with the same raw grade but Jordan Love's going to end up and is in my first round because of the position addition, while the running back could be somewhere in the middle of the third round because he doesn't get any position addition. It just didn't make sense for me to have three, four, five running backs in the first round next to a bunch of offensive tackles when we all would you know, say that an offensive tackle 
is a lot more important. So that's how my grading system comes to be. And it's probably why my grades, my rankings look a little different than the consensus because I really don't look at the big board for a while and just go position by position and then just see what those uh, raw grades and position addition ultimately um, spits out for my top 250, top 100, whatever my final big board is um, before the draft. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Uh, and I appreciate you uh, not only going through that, but I'm glad we were able to give you an opportunity to talk through it because you know I don't know why people don't ask about it more. When you look mm-hmm. at some big board, if it's solely based on film study or solely based on, you know, like PFF grading style, it's important to know that so you can factor it into your own process as well. Um, so the first one I wanted to bring up here is is number 13th overall for you is T. Higgins, uh, someone that was mocked to the Bills a lot at 22, now even at 54 uh, per a recent CBS mock. So I'm a little skeptical on T. I want to hear what you think makes him near a top 10 player uh, on your big board. Yeah, no, that's fine. I mean, I'm I'm kind of alone in liking T. Higgins this much. Um, he actually started the pre-draft process after I'd watched a lot of film during the college football season because I do this year-round as my number one wide receiver just because I thought he was a clear step or two ahead of Mike Williams when he came out of mm. Clemson and that he kind of had the um, rebounder, power forward, contested catch specialist label, but I didn't think that he was very good after the catch or running routes. Um, I thought the last two years in the back shoulder game, his contested catch skills, high pointing ability, catch radius, whatever you want to call it, T. Higgins was as good or was the next best prospect behind Mike Evans in terms of the the wide receivers in in that area that I've scouted. And then after that, I thought he was deceptive after the catch. He's a long strider. I saw him run away from people and hit some big plays when he didn't just have to high point the football. But... Because my process is certainly doesn't try to favor anyone. Um, he did squeeze in his pro day at Clemson, did not have a good workout. Um, and I just did a little recalibration after that. And certainly after the combine for those wide receivers who worked out there, he finishes my wide receiver three. Um, does he need to be in the right system? Yes. I think Jerry Judy and CD Lamb could probably thrive anywhere. Um, but beyond the right system, I think uh, T. Higgins needs to be with a quarterback that's going to be aggressive and is not going to be afraid to throw him the football if he looks like he might be covered. Because again, his contested catch skills, I think, are the best in this class. And I do kind of favor that for wide receivers. I know the league is going more separation-based, but if you can still make plays when you're seemingly not open, uh, I think that's very important. And yes, he needs to get stronger, but I think he's a good enough separator. Not great, but good enough um, that he can have one of the better, well-rounded games of all these wide receiver prospects. Yeah, you know, that makes sense to me. And it's funny because I actually start when he was a freshman, obviously as a Carolina fan, I watched a lot of Clemson as well. Uh, when when Higgins was a freshman, I was like, oh, my God, this might be the next Julio level. Uh, so I was very high on him. And then just as it went on, I didn't see – I mean, I saw him continue to win in the same ways, which is awesome. You know, he was a great college receiver. Um when I look at this class and how much wide receiver one potential there is from so many guys, guys that I could see, like a Brian Edwards, for instance, I see him being way more of a complete, uh, having a way more of a complete ceiling than T. Higgins does. I see T. Higgins as a really good deep threat specialist, jump ball specialist, that sort of thing. But And, you know, I, maybe I don't give him enough credit because you're right. On his highlight tape, it, it shows up where he can make these sideline catches. He has good body control. Uh, personally, I'd rather have Denzel Mims at this point. Uh, than T Higgins and and that, you know, the age is a concern, but 
at least we know the athleticism is there to potentially get separation at the next level. So, but I appreciate you giving, giving that breakdown there. And there's another guy that I don't think this is a hot take uh, having Makai Becton at 18th overall, because I'm right there with you. I think he ended up as uh, 17th on mine. No, sorry. 16th on my big board. And a lot of people have him approaching the top five. So I don't think it's quite a hot take for you to have him this low. Cause I agree with you. Um, generally we're below consensus but what are you concerned with about this athletic giant well the fact that when you first start talking about him you um reference how good of a run blocker he is which is still important in today's nfl but if you're drafting an offensive tackle especially in the first round and like you're saying and you're right that there is speculation for him to go inside the top five um you're drafting him for his pass protection. And I don't think he's a bad pass protector. I mean, he's my number 18 overall prospect, like you said. Um, but I thought a lot of what Louisville did last year, run pass option, screen, play action, kind of helped him a little bit in pass protection. And the times that it was just a normal drop back, um, even from shotgun, that that's where I saw him make a few of his blips in pass protection. But at 6'8", 360, he's a phenomenal athlete. Um, he's just, it's a huge arc to get around him around the corner to get to the quarterback. So yeah, I, I think he can be, um, a franchise left tackle. I just think that there's a little bit of a concern with just his normal passing sets that I just couldn't have him and, and, and didn't have him graded as a, you know, a top two offensive tackle, a top 10 overall pick, but I still think he's a fine prospect. For offensive tackles specifically, you have to be a great pass protector to be in the upper echelon. There are many of them in this class. Uh, Becton is certainly the most imposing of any of the players in this class, probably overall, regardless of position. Um, All right, so Christian Fulton. Uh, You have him as CB2. I have him as CB3 right behind CJ Henderson, but I have them both a little higher than where you do. Uh, You called him one of the cleanest prospects in the first and personally, I love the Trey White comp that has been floated around. And obviously that's just, you know, appealing to us as Bills fans. What are your thoughts on Fulton? Well, it's interesting um, doing this year round for the NFL that you see that how sometimes even for a top prospect like a LSU cornerback like Christian Fulton, that in season, the consensus about a player changes or the view changes by January or by February um, and just watching his games live, rewatching them during the season for articles at CBS and just kind of starting my uh, scouting process. Then um, he just looked like the most, like you're like reading off my article, the cleanest quarterback after Jeffrey Akuda that he can play, man, he's great finding the football in zone. Um, there were a few times that he was beaten down the field, but he, Broke up 13 passes this year. He got thrown the football more um, in his direction after Greedy Williams went on to the NFL. Was not really thrown a lot in his direction the year before because he's such a good mirroring wide receiver. And like Trey White, yes, you probably want him in off coverage and zone more than anything else. But he can play man-to-man as well. He's twitchy. um, He finds the football. He's very aware when it's arriving. And like you said, he tested very well, too. So he checked all the boxes for me. And then suddenly looking at Twitter in February and March, it's, oh, yeah, he might go in the second round. He might be the fifth or sixth cornerback off the board. I don't know where that came from. I think he is super clean. And we're going to be talking about him as one of the best young quarterbacks um, very early in his NFL career. Yeah, I really like Fulton as a prospect. Uh, 
in some ways, I definitely think he's a safer pick than C.J. Henderson. I think Henderson yeah. has a, a significantly higher ceiling just with the, the raw athleticism um, mm-hmm. and the length. But uh, I want to circle back real quick on uh, Jeremy Chin and Kyle Duggar. And the reason is, I noticed that you had eight safeties in your top 50. Um, and I wanted to just ask, is this a product of the safety class? Or is this more about the value you place on that position, especially after you talked about how you grade? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I actually don't have for my position addition at safety. That's not like one of the highest uh, boosts at the safety spot. Um, but I, I just really like this safety class in that usually four to five safeties in the top 50 is not abnormal. But like you're saying earlier that the Kyle Duggar and Jeremy Chin are, are kind of these unknown players from these small schools that we normally don't have mm. that are that athletic. Um, so I think that's why it got pushed to, um, you know, seven or eight that I'm really a big fan of. And I think another reason why I have so many is that safeties do so much today that um, a few of them, Terrell Burgess from Utah, Kayvon Wallace from Clemson, um, they're mostly like slot corners that play safety. Um, and then you have your linebacker types like Chin, like Isaiah Simmons, like Duggar. Um, Antoine Winfield's kind of the best, I think, just pure free safety mm-hmm. uh, in this draft class. So there's like different types. There's like subsets at the safety position because they're just asked to do so much today. And I do. Yeah, I, I really like this safety class, maybe more so than the consensus. Yeah, I've got I've got seven in my top 50 and and three of them sneak in the back, but I really like Kayvon Wallace just for his versatility playing mm-hmm. a slot cornerback role, but being a really solid tackler, mm-hmm. uh, a guy that's not getting talked about nearly enough. I mean, he's kind of just thrown in there, I think. Uh, but yeah, real, really good twitched up player as well. Um, do you see a, a, tra- a transition to true linebacker for either Jeremy Chin or Kyle Duggar? A lot of people have talked about potentially letting them bulk up. Uh, they're both around 220 right now, but you know, and Isaiah Simmons is, is 230. He's probably already heavy enough to play linebacker or still agile enough to play safety. Do you see a true transition for either of those guys? Um, I don't really. And I know that uh, kind of the, the conventional wisdom is, yeah, they're going to be linebackers, will linebackers at the NFL level. Um, but like you said, Duggar can make plays down the field with his range and his ball Absolutely. skills. Absolutely. And the film that I got from Jeremy Chin, I saw him do the same at the intermediate level. Maybe not as many ridiculous plays like deep down the field, Mm -hmm. but he had one interception where he ranges from the deep middle playing free safety all the way to the sideline, contorts his body, um, and does not look like a six foot three, 225 pound safety doing that. So like I'm saying, like I, I think when you look at a will linebacker in today's NFL, he has to flex out and play in the slot. Um, maybe even at times he's going to play in the intermediate portion of the field in zone coverage. Um, so if you want to call them kind of hybrid linebackers, I could see that, but I think they're too good in coverage because of their explosiveness, maybe not to run with the tight end or to, to stay with a tiny slot wide receiver, but with their playmaking ability because of the explosiveness in zone, I would just say their safeties and let them roam at the intermediate and deeper portions of the field in passing situations. Yeah, I agree. You know, I talk a lot about this on this podcast, and that's nickel should become base. And the Bills have actually adjusted. One reason I'm just so thrilled with what the Bills are doing is because that's one of the things that they've adopted. 
And that's one reason why Big Nickel is such a, a thing that I focus on. Um, but why take away the versatility of Isaiah Simmons or Duggar or Chin um, or, or even Kayvon Walls for that matter when the offensive side of the ball is becoming more positionless at the same time? Yeah, um, like one thing on that too is that Kyle Duggar and Jeremy Chin mostly played, like I said, like the robber position at the intermediate portion of the field mm-hmm. or uh, free safety. For them to all of a sudden be three or four yards behind the line of scrimmage, taking on blocks, uh, pulling guards, that's not really their game. You want them to roam free and just be like a missile to the ball carrier, not exactly. having to worry about sifting through all the traffic. So I would keep both of them at safety, let them where they're a little bit more free and they're not having to deal with all the traffic on the inside. No, that makes perfect sense to me. Um, all right, so flipping back over to offense real quick. At 64th overall, you've got Justin Jefferson, and this is lower than almost any recent big board that I've seen on Jay Jeff. I was skeptical on him at first. I've come around to having him as a late first round level prospect. I'm not completely sold, but I don't. I actually see Mike Thomas as a pretty decent comp for him, uh, just with his skill set and where he wins. What are your thoughts on Jefferson as a prospect, and specifically what keeps him almost outside of date uh, of the round two? Well, yeah, he's another LSU guy that I saw during the NFL draft season or or during the college football season, I should say. Um, I saw him as like a second or third rounder. I thought he'd be a quality player. And then the national title game happened and then the combine happened. And then which I get it. I mean, at the combine, if you if you test well, that's going to push you up boards and it should. Um, I don't think he plays to four, four, three or whatever he ran four, four, five. Um, I, I didn't see that speed outside of that long catch and run um, against Texas early in the year. I, mm. I didn't see this blazing speed down the field from him. And I'm a big advocate of players that are just really productive in college. But I think Justin Jefferson, to me, was more of just a product of how ridiculous Joe Burrow and that offensive mm. line were. I mean, he only accounted for 25% of the passing yards, even with 1,400 yards this season. Which, which that percentage is not crazy high. And then trait-wise, um, I, I think he's decent getting off the line of scrimmage. Kind of reminds me of Stevie Johnson in a way that he really likes to use kind of basketball-like jukes um, to beat press. Um, mm. But beyond that, I saw him get open a lot on a deep over route, off play action, on an RPO as well in the slant game. I, I just don't know. And Maybe I'll be wrong about this because I have read a lot about scouts saying he's a precise route runner. It's the best route running they've ever seen outside of Jerry Judy the last couple of years. Um, I, I just thought he, it, like what we saw from him um, was more him getting schemed open than creating separation um, and, and doing things individually. And the last part, um, PFF has him at like 12 of 13 contested catches which is a crazy high number. And mm-hmm. he being someone that has traditionally um, really prioritized the ability to make contested catches, you would think like, why wouldn't Chris have him higher? You like Mike Evans, like T Higgins um, going back to watch those contested catch situations to me, more than half of those were just absolutely perfect passes mm. from Joe Burrow where the corner couldn't find the football. He was face guarding. The ball just lands right in his hands. It wasn't him leaping, high pointing, boxing out, using his body. Uh, And a quick story on that. um, I remember when Devin Smith came out of Ohio state, Mm -hmm. the Cardell Jones year that uh, he ran fast. He had, you know, crazy yards per catch. 
and he got the label that he was great in contested catch situations. In that Ohio State national title run, there was four or five bombs from uh, Cardell Jones that were labeled contested catches for Devin Smith, but he was never really using his body or his leaping ability or his ability to catch with his hands to mm-hmm. win in those you know, on those plays, it was more about the ball location and the cornerbacks um, just not finding the football. That's what I saw from Justin Jefferson. I think T Higgins, I think Isaiah Hodgins, I think Antonio Gandy golden are all better in true contested catch situations individually than Justin Jefferson. Yes. He's going to go in the first round. I have him the end of my second round, but we'll see um, where he ultimately fits in, in the NFL. Don't think he's a bad player. I just don't see a first-round prospect. No, that's completely fair. And I'll, I'll be honest, I agree with you that it concerned me that he was only really productive when Joe Burrow had the single most productive quarterback season of all time. Uh, and not to mention, he's not even the best wide receiver on his team. But I have him outside my top five wide receivers. I'm comfortable there because I think he does have enough of a really high floor that he's going to yep. be a contributor probably right away. Uh, I think there's some really interesting possibilities for where he could go. I actually think that he could slot in and replace Stephon Diggs in Minnesota uh, across from Adam Thielen. Can he transition to the outside? We'll see. Um, Another guy you're way lower on than consensus here uh, is Austin Jackson, offensive tackle from USC. Uh, Evaluators are are lower than forecasters on Jackson, meaning that, you know, the people actually just grading him and not where he might go in the draft. Uh, they're generally way lower on him. I have him outside my top 50, and I thought that was too low uh, relative to where he's probably going to go, but I'm comfortable with it because, you know, he's an upside pick. Uh, Is he really a day three prospect? I would pick him like in the third or the fourth round. I don't recall exactly where I have him on my big board, Um, but I watched him early in the process, and then as you're mentioning, when the buzz started to build for him to maybe be a first rounder. And now mm-hmm. as much as yesterday or as recently as yesterday, Daniel Jeremiah said he could go in the top 15, which is crazy. I, to me. I can't see that because here's why I understand it because of he's got an NFL left tackle body. He's got good length. Um, didn't have a crazy combine, which is kind of surprising to me that, that there is this much momentum for him. Um, I think he needs to, come a long way with his power that um anytime to me that i saw a pac-12 edge rusher bull rush him he just was put on skates that i don't think he's nearly strong enough to play left tackle or right tackle as a rookie maybe by his second season um i think he could maybe hold his own in that regard um but going from the pac-12 to the nfl is a pretty big jump especially when you're talking about edge rushers and secondly i don't think his hands are very good that Watch the Utah game. Bradley and I completely ate his lunch that he just with his <laughs> counter moves. He was like Austin Jackson just was totally dumbfounded. Um, so I, I don't see someone that's particularly strong or really good resetting his hands and recovering after being beaten by a counter move. So to me, that's like a third or a fourth round tackle. You hope by your second or third year, he can be a contributor, but there's a lot of buzz. and It would almost be surprising now if Austin Jackson doesn't go in the first round. Yeah. And that's just crazy to me. I mean, I just don't see it really. It's not like no. he had this great, I mean, I'd understand it more for someone like Isaiah Wilson, who I yeah. think only had two sacks given up in his entire career. Uh, but, but had some serious concerns in testing. He's another enormous human like Mekhi Becton. Um, probably the only one who's even comes close to his size, but 
at least Wilson had really good production. Like Jackson just is really a pure upside play who didn't test all that well. So it's kind of confusing to me. Uh, Not only that though, but I'm actually much more on board with a guy like Ezra Cleveland. You have it 59th overall on your big board. I have him in in the first round for me. Uh, I'm a big fan of his athletic profile. He actually comes out looking a lot like Andre Dillard. I'm going to put, or tweeted something about that last night, actually. Um, But yeah, so to me, there are better upside tackle picks uh, who could potentially contribute much sooner than Austin Jackson would. All right. So moving on, the last guy I wanted to bring up specifically is Jalen Hurts. And that's someone you had nearly outside your top 150. You had him at 147. And I'm going to be honest, Chris, my heart hurts here. Okay. (laughs) I'm, I've been banging the drum for Jalen Hurts for a while now. Jeff and I have been talking about it on the podcast. We talked with Hayden Winks of Roto World about him, who also loves him. Uh, This could sound crazy to you coming from someone who has uh, him at 147th overall, but I have him as a top 10 prospect. I know it's way, way higher than most, but I believe in it. And I want to hear what gives you pause on Hertz as a prospect and and what you see him developing into in the next level. First off, do not apologize about any evaluations that you do. I'd much rather hear that and have a discussion about something like that than people and and I'm not trying to disrespect anyone because being a draft analyst I know how much time and effort goes into it absolutely the the evaluators that just basically their big board looks like a mock draft like what Mm -hmm. are you doing then because we know we're positive like not that you should be grading this way but we know that in three or four years we are going to look back on this first round and about (laughs) half if not more of it are going to be like, why did this guy go in the first round? He was a bust. He was terrible. Or he was just a middle-of-the-road player that was probably a third or a fourth-round pick. So if you like Jalen Hurts that much, and I don't, that's completely fine. I'd much rather talk about that than just do, oh, here's my top 32 big board that looks exactly like the first <laughs> round is going to go. Like, that's that's not a true evaluation. I mean, I guess it could be, but chances are if, you, if your evaluations – and your big board looks like a mock draft, uh, then it's probably going to be pretty wrong in the next couple of years. But having said that, so I certainly applaud you actually for having Jalen Hurts that high. Here are my concerns with him. I think um, first off, more philosophically or generally, um, I, I've had a tendency to almost ding Oklahoma players, um, especially quarterbacks that when Baker Mayfield came out, I was not nearly as high on him as, you know, the number one consensus overall player and thought, man, like, look at Lincoln Riley's offense. So creative schemes, guys open um, the offensive linemen are all getting drafted. The receivers are amazing. And then last year, Kyler Murray comes out and it's wow. After Baker Mayfield set all these efficiency records, Kyler Murray actually was better than him. Oh, my God. And I like Kyler Murray. He was my number two quarterback, actually, behind Drew Locke, but I still had him in the first round. I just think that Oklahoma system, it's, like, hard to not complete 70% of your passes <laughs> yeah. and throw for 11 yards per attempt when you have CeeDee Lamb, when you've had D.D. Westbrook, Marquise Brown, Orlando Brown blocking for you. Um, so that was, like, generally, maybe I went in, and I obviously try to remove any bias possible, but went in thinking, okay, I'm going to see – this Jalen Hurts film, and and it's going to be times where they're going to score 50 and 60 points, and they certainly did. Um, I think he's a little bit late uh, recognizing where to go with the football, and I like his accuracy, actually, for being kind of this run-first guy early in his career. 
Um, but I don't think he's pinpoint accurate. I don't think he's to the level of where Baker or where Kyler Murray were. Um, and again, if he could go to a system that's completely air raid, that would be great. I don't. And although we are seeing that system being implemented more in the NFL today, I don't. It's not half the league. It's probably not even a third of the league that are doing a lot of air raid concepts in their offense. So I, I just don't think he can read coverages and get through his progressions quick enough to be a first or a second round pick. Um, and really, as a runner, um, he didn't test through the roof. I see kind of like a bigger power running back than more. Uh, that he's like Lamar Jackson or Josh Allen or Deshaun Watson. I think he can make plays with his feet. I just don't know if that's really something that he could lean on as a last resort in the NFL because he's a little smaller and he's not a dynamic, explosive athlete. So that's kind of one side of the argument. I'm, I'm really interested um, to hear yours, why you have so high on him. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And when I did my write-up on Hurts, one of the things I made sure to point out was the talent that surrounded him. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, it was like... We've seen a guy like Josh Allen who had basically no talent and and still end up in the top 10. And yet Jalen Hurts has all this talent, succeeded in two very different style systems, uh, refused to turn the ball over for the most part, and has this great analytical profile uh, and just wasn't getting any love. So that's when it kind of first started, and I really dove into him. And when he tested, it confirmed what I saw on tape, and that to me is just a Russell Wilson like 2.0. I I get there's a hesitation – to put anyone in Russell Wilson's sentence, basically, because there's so much intangible, intangibly that Russell Wilson does that no one can replicate. But Jalen Hurts is a phenomenal leader. He's a winner everywhere he goes. Again, talent, system, coaching, it's all there. Um, but when you, when you add the 459 wheels, 95th percentile, 100th percentile breakout age, 95th percentile QBR, I mean, he's just got so many boxes checked for me. Uh, the size isn't a concern. In fact, I almost kind of like it because when he lowers, you know, Josh Allen, I, I freak out when he takes off on the run because I'm like, dude, we need you to be completely healthy and not have one of your extremely long legs get, you know, snapped by a D tackle or something. Uh, Jalen Hurts turns into a running back in the open field. And I think we're seeing the NFL not only, you know, we had the whole zone read era, so to speak, with RG3 and then RG3's career got just derailed by that, basically. Um, Jalen Hurts, to me, would be so effective if deployed like a Dak Prescott or Russell Wilson, which has intentional running concepts uh, from the quarterback, which are basically the most efficient running play that you can do is is a designed run. Uh, I loved Thor Nystrom's um, take on on Hurts, which was a sawed-off Cam Newton. And I think that's so, so, so smart because Cam, you know, great runner, powerful. Uh, but I think if Hurts, if they dial it back for him in the NFL, he can probably turn into a Dak Prescott type guy who's someone I prayed for the bills to take when he was available in the fourth, uh, and Dallas took him eight picks before. And then we got the guy you mentioned a minute ago, Cardale Jones instead. So that's my thought on Jalen Hurts. You know, the, the position addition part of that, uh, is really what pushed him all the way up. I, I have a first round grade on him. Yeah. And I think, I mean, what you said too, that, that 90% of what I do is, a combination of film and combine metrics, analytical profiles. You're right about how good of an analytical profile he has. Um, I do think some of the Oklahoma system is baked into that, but I will say this without knowing beyond what I read on Twitter or reading a profile, um, 
I don't put a ton of intangibles character into my grade just because I don't, I don't know these players and I'm not mm-hmm. going to trust Absolutely. really what someone else I don't know says about some other person I don't know. Um, but I will say everything I've read about him and just knowing what he went through at Alabama, getting replaced by Tua in the national title game and then staying one more year and then going to Oklahoma. If there's a prospect at the game's most important position that will overachieve in the NFL of any of these quarterbacks, even Joe Burrow, Tua, whoever, it will probably be Jalen Hurts because of what he has between the ears. So, um, yeah, he's my number 147 overall player, but I wouldn't be surprised if in the next couple of years he's ultimately a starting quarterback in the NFL with a smart offensive coordinator that uses him in the right way and that he will be successful. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's a very fair thing to say. Um, and I think the way that I've looked at him, one of the reasons I haven't rated so highly is because I say, well, my floor for him basically is like a Tyrod Taylor. And we saw Tyrod Taylor be really effective in the right system, which is now yep. the system that Lamar Jackson is being an MVP caliber player in. Uh, so I think you're right that it will take the right system for Jalen Hurts to be successful. I just think that that system is becoming more mainstream than it once was um, and it is less of, you know, someone shouldn't be drafting Jalen Hurts if they're running straight up pro style and, and you know, don't want and want their quarterback to just be a pocket passer. Yeah. One thing about that, too, that it, it's kind of evolved in how I've graded and, and just where I prioritize certain skills at the quarterback position that you're right, that if, if Jalen Hurts came out in 2011, like Tyrod Taylor did 2010, 2011, he probably would have been like Tyrod Taylor, a sixth round pick. But we're seeing and and that what I've done, and I almost, I call it the Mahomes line. In 2017, <laughs> I think Mahomes changed everything. Pre-Mahomes, you wanted a, or I wanted a pocket-only quarterback that would get through his reads, one, two, three, four, um, and if not, he would take a sack, he would throw the ball away, maybe a little scrambling, but I really was not factoring in running ability um, or, you know, making some risky decisions. It was just getting the ball out quick, West Coast, Drew Brees, Tom Brady, uh, Peyton Manning. And then after seeing that Patrick Mahomes went as high as he did with his improvisational skill, he's a pretty good athlete too. Um, and then obviously with the arm strength, there's all the other stuff you can do after that. In that draft, Deshaun Watson, then Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson, those are the quarterbacks that I think are ushering in a new era that in 10 years, we're going to be looking at quarterbacks and say, hey, if you're a pocket only quarterback, if you're Jake Fromm in this draft class, um, we're not going to think as highly of you as we would have 10 or 20 years ago. We want the uh, ability to ad lib and to run and to create out of the structure, keep your head up and throw the football down the field. And Jalen Hurts does give you a lot of that new age quarterbacking that a Jake Fromm or a Jacob Eason, maybe more talented passers with stronger arms, um, it, you know, especially Jacob Eason, um, they just don't give you that. So it, it's funny how and interesting how the quarterback position has evolved as to what is important to be successful at that spot. Absolutely. I mean, it just changes everything that a defense has to do. You know, you don't have contain or you have to have contain on the edge now as opposed to, you know, just pass rush. We know eventually you're going to get because this guy's chilling in the pocket. You know, if you know he's going to be there in Big Ben is not seen as this phenomenal athlete, but he still had enough mobility to kind of shrug people off. But he's nowhere near the challenge to guard or deal with than a Lamar Jackson or even a Josh Allen is. And that's one reason that I still have. Herbert in my in my first round. I'm not a big fan of Herbert. I recognize the upside and the arm talent there, but the fact that he has 
actually better athleticism than Josh Allen, and we've seen the dual threat ability that Josh Allen brought to the league, gives me, uh, you know, some hope for Herbert to do something similar as well. Uh, so I appreciate you giving the time to talk about Hertz there, someone that I think is probably the, one of the most interesting prospects to me, uh, just sure. because of, I guess, how different I am relative to consensus. So I don't know that he's necessarily a sleeper to me since I have him rated so highly, but I want to hear from you maybe one offensive and one defensive sleeper that an audience needs to know about. It's something I love to ask just because, you know, you, you got you to pull the, the community here. Yeah. Um, how about going offensive sleeper uh, at the weakest position in this draft class, tight end? Um, my number mm-hmm. one tight end, Harrison Bryant. And I'm, I'm kind of going against what I normally do because I'm a big combine guy. He did not have a good combine, um, but he's like the one prospect in this draft class or one of a few, but I, I don't do this a lot, that I don't know what he did at his combine because Harrison Bryant from FAU does not look as bad of an athlete on the field as he did at the combine. I think he is the modern-day tight end, that he looks like a big slot receiver. He runs really good routes, can create separation, short level of the field, intermediate, and down the field. And not a lot of tight ends, especially in this class, can do that. Mm. Um would I pick him in the first or second round? No. I think I have him somewhere in the third round. Um, but there's Adam Troutman. There's Cole Komet. Um, there's a few others that are getting more buzz than him. But I think um, Harrison Bryant, with his receiving ability, the route running, and pretty good in contested catch situations, too, um, and just how productive he was. He has a lot of experience catching a lot of passes and creating after the catch. I think Harrison Bryant on offense um, will look back and say, hey, you know what? For being a fourth or a fifth round pick, He's actually a pretty successful tight end. Yeah, absolutely. That's fair. Um, my tight end one is actually Chase Claypool, and I'm cheating a little bit because I know he wants to stay wide receiver. Uh, but to me, I, I, his comp for me is Evan Ingram. And Evan Ingram is much more wide receiver than he is tight end. So I yep. say, I mean, and Claypool's a really good blocker for, for a wide receiver too. He's got the size to, you know, to get down on, on a D lineman if needed. So I say... I'm just going to project him there because this is such a weak uh, tight end class as a whole. Uh, there's actually someone, I think, his comp to me hits really close to home, and that's Stephen Sullivan, and his comp is Dawson Knox. And that's because we saw very little of Dawson Knox. We saw almost none of Stephen Sullivan at LSU uh, playing mainly behind Thad Moss. But the athleticism is there, and when he was on the field, he looked like he could do something. So. I thought the Bills really uncovered a gem there in the fourth or trading back up into the third round for Knox. Uh, I think Stephen Sullivan could have that uh, type of impact as well. And one other guy is Albert Oakwegnum, or Oakwegnum, rather. Excuse me. It's quite the mouthful. Uh, crazy straight line speed. He's my tight end five. We're basically just betting on athleticism at that point because to me, there just aren't enough really good uh, prospects uh, to rule out, you know, an upside guy like him. So, uh, but yeah, you know, Harrison Bryant, people are kind of, I think sometimes people confuse him and Hunter Bryant, which is really lazy. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of just like throw them out when they do that. Uh, but interesting prospect definitely has one of the best sets of receiving skills at the tight end position in this draft. Yeah. And then defensive, I was trying to rack my brain for a defensive sleeper. Um, too quickly. I could talk about that. I kind of mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, Kayvon Wallace from Clemson and Terrell Burgess from Utah. That Burgess mm. was kind of like the unknown guy playing in a secondary with Jalen Johnson. It's probably going to be a top 40 or 50 pick. Julian Blackman has played corner and safety, made a lot of plays. Um, there was just so many good players on that Utah defense that it was easy to lose Terrell Burgess or Kayvon Wallace. 
uh, at Clemson. They are, if, if you're going to talk about Jeremy Chin and Kyle Duggar and Isaiah Simmons as this modern-day safety linebacker, those two, Wallace and Burgess, are the modern-day safety slot corners. That they can mm. literally drop down in the slot and mirror NFL caliber in, in terms of their quickness. Wide receivers make plays on the football. They can play free safety, range and zone. Um, they read the quarterback's eyes, route concepts very well. And like you said, they're kind of small. I mean, I guess for a safety spot, they're both like around 5'10", 200 pounds, um, which is actually big for a slot corner. They're play bigger than uh, their size against the run and their sure tackler. So not necessarily something that I think the Bills would be into uh, relative to where they'll ultimately probably be selected. Um, but I just think we'll look back and say, hey, look, these are two very valuable players on the two defenses that they ultimately land on. Yeah, I, I'm uh, I'm higher on Wallace than I am on Burgess, but I think that's a really fair point about Burgess just kind of getting lost in the shuffle when Jalen Johnson is now getting, you know, first round hype. Uh, so that, that's really good. I'm excited to see where Burgess ends up. And I really think Kayvon Wallace uh, is just one of those guys we're going to see on day two and be like, how the hell, you know, did all these other guys go in front of him? When he's just, yep. when the slot is, is being emphasized more and more by offenses, why aren't we putting emphasis on guys that are really, really strong slot coverage guys? Not to mm-hmm. mention, he's got versatility to, to play down in the run game, tackle really well. He's a good blitzer. He's all twitched up. Uh, I love that. Um, awesome. So I wanted to ask you, what's the draft day trade that you were the most expecting or would love to see the most? The most I'm expecting, actually, um, because I'm not really sure what's going to happen with the Lions uh, and the Dolphins. Is there going to be a Tua trade or not? That seemed like it was almost, you know, set in stone a few days ago, but I don't know if it is anymore, that the Atlanta Falcons are going to trade up to land either if Jeffrey Akuda falls or C.J. Henderson. They need a corner. Thomas Dimitrov is traded up for Julio Jones, Desmond Trufant, Tack McKinley, um, Caleb McGarry last year. He's unafraid to trade up in the first round. Um, the Falcons are picking right in the middle. They, they might believe that C.J. Henderson won't be there. Um, and he's almost kind of come out and said that, yeah, like we are are picking 16th overall, like for the time being. He said that at the Senior Bowl, Thomas Dimitrov. So I think the Falcons um, didn't come into even the last week as being a team that we thought, oh, yeah, this is a team that's definitely going to trade up. They don't have a ton of extra picks. Right. But I think they're like, Matt Ryan is getting there up in age. We have Julio Jones getting up there in age. Let's pick a corner after um, moving on from Desmond Trufant. We need another cornerback to pair with Isaiah Oliver. So I think the Falcons will be the team that will that I would put the most money on trading up in round one. Yeah, that's fair. I think uh, I think a potential trade down partner with them would be Cleveland. Now it really seems like they're pretty set on trading back, which to me is a mistake when your one true true need, assuming you think Baker Mayfield is the answer, is at left tackle, and assuming they don't get rid of Odell Beckham Jr. If you you need a left tackle. And so the only excuse to not get one is if you traded, you know, maybe you trade back and then you, I tweeted about this earlier, trade back in the first and then trade that first for Trent Williams and, you know, get, get yourself some more picks, get some more depth other places. That's a possibility to me. But if you trade back and, and you don't address left tackle or you get, you know, blatantly, you know, just a shittier player than one of these top four studs, that's a huge mistake. But for the Falcons, it'd be wise to get up there and get one of these really good uh, cornerback prospects. I have, C.J. Henderson is my 12th ranked player, and Christian Fulton is my 13th. So if they were to get up to 10 and take them, I'd, I'd be uh, grading that pretty well. So I appreciate that. Uh, any final comments before we let you go, Chris? 
No, I just think we're going to be in for one of the wildest first rounds uh, that we've seen. And, and not just because of the virtual element or the coronavirus. Um, and I feel like we kind of say that every year going into it. But really, usually with the full pro day circuit, all the GMs and, and a lot of the scouting directors all standing next to each other. Everyone's gossiping. There's some leaks that get out about what teams like which prospects. So we have kind of a general mm. idea of, okay, the Jets like these two guys, the Bills like these two players. This year we really have no idea, um, really after the first two picks, as to the pecking order at offensive tackle, at wide receiver, um, maybe even at corner, um, the edge rushers after Chase Young and Caleb on Chase on. So really, like, I have a mock draft due tomorrow that I might tweak one or two times before Thursday. It's probably going to be the worst mock draft I've ever done, which is fine. <laughs> I'm, more, I'm more into the evaluations than, than getting five or six picks right out of a 32-pick mock draft anyway. Um, but, yeah, I just think it's going to be more fun than usual because we're going to go in kind of blindfolded and say, hey, we don't know what's going to happen truly. This is a really exciting one. I love the the rumors that there's going to be so much that is not publicly seen as consensus or or in the media. So I'm excited for it. I honestly think we're going to see some craziness happen in round two as well, because I think a lot of teams are going to be trading back. A lot of people are going to be seeking future picks. We talked about this earlier uh, in the offseason that just with the offseason program being cut short, I think a lot of people are going to be afraid of investing too much in 2020 and thinking, well, 2021 looks pretty good. Why don't we just, you know, get someone later and, and give it a shot. So, um, awesome. Well, I'm really looking forward to it guys for you, for you all listening, make sure to check out that article that we referenced before Chris's top 250, all on CBS sports and at Chris Rapasso on Twitter as well. Chris, thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate having you and hope to have you again sometime in the future. All right. Well, anytime. Thanks a lot. All right. Take care.